Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Nasi, welcome to Next Economy Now. It's so great to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you. So we have been working together for a little while, and I'd love for you to start um, off our listeners as we dive into this vision for uh, climate beneficial buildings. I'd love for you to start by sharing what is natural building? Okay, so natural, well, to back up a little bit, uh, you know, my work is as a natural builder, as someone who um, specializes in knowing how to use natural materials in buildings. Um, And Earlier this year, uh, many of us realized that we could bring several threads together, including natural building, uh, in a way that might really um, allow a jump forward in uh, the quality of the built environment as we rebuild from the fires. Um, That's what we're talking about. So, Massey, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this, and maybe you can go from there into describing for our listeners what is natural building. Yeah, so I uh, have been a, pra- a practicing natural builder for over a decade, um, which means a mix of hands-on building and design and actually now research work all pertaining to using natural building. And um, and uh, what that means is uh, employing uh, plant-based or mineral-based materials in construction um, that have had very little industrial processing. Um, and uh, they tend to be renewable and also compostable at the end of their lives. Uh, and some examples of this um, would be clay soils, most common natural materials in building are clay soils, straw, wood, stone, bamboo, hemp, sand, gravel, uh, and actually many other things, but those are probably the most common natural materials. Great. So you got into this natural building as a um, practically, and um, how has it evolved since you began? How have, has your thinking around this evolved, and where where do you hope to see this at your work go? Uh, well, it's actually been really interesting. I'd say the whole movement has evolved, and uh, hopefully my thinking along with it. Uh, but when I began, I and most other people were really interested in what I would call a very grassroots vision, which is still true, uh, but I think we were all pretty interested in how to build for ourselves, you know, um, and maybe in fairly specific contexts. Um, yeah, I think the prevailing idea for a long time was really backing away from the prevailing culture and building an ecological culture that way. And I think most of us have since pretty early on, I began to get more interested in how to bring natural construction into a wider context, into urban contexts, into um, combination with mainstream materials, um, you know, into parts of the culture where people aren't thinking about this stuff. Um, That became a much more interesting creative challenge, both for myself and also for, I think, a lot of people uh, who began building hands-on. And of course, uh, part of that, with that comes addressing, uh, if you're going to talk about cutting-edge natural building, you have to talk about climate change. So how does that relate to climate change and and maybe show us how it relates currently in our built environment? Uh, So, well, to to know how to think about buildings and climate change, you got to know three things. You have to be able to think about three categories of things related to building. Um, 
The first is that in the big picture, um, constructing and operating buildings in the United States um, require, uh, is responsible for about half of our fossil fuel emissions annually. Uh, and so it's a very high leverage part of our lives to uh, uh, invest inquiry into when we're thinking about how to combat climate change. Um, and the other two things you have to know are uh, where the impact of those buildings, how the impact breaks down. And so there's the impact of making the building, which is the embodied carbon of the materials. So the emissions associated with making and transporting building materials and constructing the building. Um, and the second category is what's called performance or operational emissions. So it's the impact of living in the building over time uh, and all of the energy that that requires. Um, and so um, thinking about um, how those things um, can be combined most effectively is how we get to what's called, uh, or what people are calling now, real zero. Um, so an buildings that actually are zero carbon emissions, both in their materials in their construction phase and in the way that they're inhabited. Uh, and natural materials have a lot to contribute to that. Um, we'll talk about in a sec. Um, but it's interesting to think about um, if you're employing the best case scenario, how much carbon can you sequester in a building if you're using carbon sequestering materials um, and you're also using cutting edge um, technologies that prevent a building from emitting a lot of um, carbon dioxide over its lifespan. Um, and one possible answer to that, and people are um, employing different, different modeling scenarios to try to answer that question, uh, but um, according to New Frameworks Construction, which is a, a building also specializes in natural building. Um, their best case scenario model suggests that a, that a modest sized house that's meant to be carbon sequestering could sequester up to nine tons of carbon, um, which is um, roughly equivalent to the emissions, uh, two annual emit, two, the equivalent of two cars annual emissions to give you a sense of scale. Wow. Right, so we're thinking about you know, a, a concrete-based house with uh, the most beautiful concrete wall structure um, could be fire resilient, but that would have a lot of embodied energy. Yeah. And then maybe it would have less energy over the lifespan, but, but you're really kind of balancing both of those two pieces and really thinking, um, how can we actually, so how do, how do we sequester carbon in a building envelope? Well, this gets back to natural materials. Uh, so when you when you use something that's plant-based as a building material, um, it sequesters carbon actually in two ways in that process. Uh, one, you know, when you when you fill up the walls of a building with something like straw, um, which is one thing we do in natural building uh, to insulate, um, that straw has carbon in it. Um, so when the plants that produce straw grow, they're drawing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and turning it into um, stable carbon in the body of the plant material. Um, and that carbon remains in that plant until the plant breaks down. But when you're employing, when you're putting straw into the walls of a building, your main objective is for the straw not to break down. And so to serve its structural purpose or its insulating purpose. Uh, and so what you have then is a carbon sink. Uh, you have carbon that has been removed from the atmosphere by the plant and stored in the building while accomplishing a bunch of other things as well. Um, if you are obtaining that straw from a sustainable agricultural source, um, the process of growing that straw is very likely also sequestering carbon in the soil. Uh, and so when you get into natural materials, their supply chains tend to be almost entirely the ecosystems that produce them. And increasingly we're learning with, with crop plants that produce straw, with forests that produce wood, um, 
how we understand the carbon cycling of those ecosystems is actually a really great opportunity for carbon sequestration as well. So you mentioned that there are a lot of people in this field that are doing modeling to understand the carbon sequestration. Can you talk a little bit about your collaboration with Piscina's Ranch and how you're thinking about um, what, what your work, what you can add to, to this thought body? Yeah, so, the, so my work until I, I did, so I, I did um, uh, a couple of different kinds of work for Piscinus Ranch, which is a, um, a large ranch south of the bay that's focused on the development of different types of regenerative land management, um, croplands um, and rangeland uh, management. Um, and in that process, I spent a lot of time with the, um, the ranch manager and the crew uh, and the owner of the ranch, Sally. Um, and that was really my uh, in-depth introduction to supply chains for things like straw uh, and the potential for those supply chains and really beginning to think about the ecosystem end of natural building. You know, we know that natural building materials are about as low impact as you can get um, from a materials perspective. Um, but I hadn't, until then, I hadn't really spent much time thinking about the production perspective of materials. And Piscinus is really, that's really what they're all about. Um, and more than even studying it, they're about the creative development of, you know, polyculture croplands that increase our ability to sequester carbon, um, both um, quickly in volume and also over time. Nice. So you're actually looking at, okay, where does the straw come from in California? How could we use the built environment to support more producers to grow things in even more regenerative ways? And, and how can we bring more of those carbon-based materials into our building envelopes? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a really great opportunity. I mean, just to be clear, you know, most straw now is produced through industrial agriculture and is considered a waste product. And even so, it still sequesters carbon in a building. But I feel that we have we can go way beyond that. And, and we have also this opportunity to create a supportive market for materials from regenerative agriculture um, by increasing our use of carbon based materials in buildings as well. Right. I think. David Arkin mentioned that we have enough industrial waste straw right now to build 200,000 homes a year in California out of, out of straw. We're not going to run out of <laughs> Yeah, so what's cool about that too is that you can work on both ends of the puzzle, right? You know, you can, we can, there's a lot of creative development that we, um, you know, straw-based construction um, is, you know, now quite developed and there's still more that we can do with it, you know, so we can work on that end because we're not, there's not really a materials supply issue. Uh, and at the same time, we can work on the supply chain ends and uh, increasing the, the um, proportion of regeneratively produced straw as well at the same time. So the material supply issue brings me to our next theme, which is looking at the rebuild across California due to the homes that have been devastated and destroyed because of the wildfire season this past year. Um, I... I have heard a lot about lack of material availability, um, the, the reduction in supply available to rebuild our communities. What is your vision for how natural building could play a role in, in the fire rebuilds both in Northern and Southern California and beyond? Yeah, uh, well, I think we have, you know, it's, it's um, awful to say, but um, disasters offer a certain type of opportunity. Um, and I think what is interesting to the whole green building community in California um, is how to support um, at least aspects of the rebuild process to be as green as they possibly can be. Um, in great part, because the people who are actually dealing with the rebuilding don't 
that's the, I think they want that, or a lot of people want that, but it's the last thing they have the bandwidth to deal with, you know, and you alluded to um, material shortages and there are a lot of challenges surrounding um, the fire rebuild process, you know, shortage of labor, um, all sorts of um, site specific issues like the water issue in Fountain Grove and, um, or the, the, um, the water infrastructure issue there um, that, um, you know, I think, suggest that we need to that, that the rebuild needs outside and then of course under insurance which is rampant um that suggests that we need a, to find a way to bring other outside resources and ideas to the fire rebuild process regardless of wanting to make it really green um and so i think there's when you one of the opportunities that we have um in this rebuild is to say well there's a shortfall of all sorts of things needed to rebuild well um so how do we begin to build more energy around um models for building and examples for cutting edge green building that are relevant to everybody um, nationally, you know, in California, places that aren't rebuilding from fire um, that could really bring in other resources and other energy and other interests um, to a rebuild that needs extra support and is in great part for a demographic that already wants to be as green as possible. Right. And how do natural materials perform in fire because you mentioned the water infrastructure issue in Fountain Grove and that's essentially molten pipes because they're plastic based and um, there's lots of other issues that we've seen um, around the the lack of our communities of being built not in a fire literate way mm -hmm. um, so we're now dealing with the repercussions so how, how does natural material stand up in that context uh, natural materials, I mean, of course, that's a wide range of materials, um, but we would be most likely employing a combination of, of wood structure and straw or straw and clay infill um, for uh, um, the specific designs that we've been contemplating. But um, they, uh, there are a lot of great examples of straw bale buildings that came through the fire. Um, and these can be, there's an article about this on the California Straw Building Association website, uh, www.strawbuilding.org, um, that offers examples of several bale buildings that did survive and why, and then a few that didn't. I mean, they're not, they're not uh, you know, invincible to fire, but well plastered straw buildings um, are, there's not really a good opportunity for oxygen to get into the walls. Um, and if that's the case, they can't burn. And so I think my favorite photo of one of the straw bale buildings was of, um, you know, you can tell that the whole landscape around it has burned. Um, and there's a, a bumpy discolored section on the side of the wall where firewood was stacked against the building and the firewood burned and the building did not. Um, and then where natural buildings burn, it's often for the same reasons that conventional buildings burn. Uh, so sparks got sucked in through vents, uh, either in the floor or the roof, uh, or there was something uh, flammable really close to a window that caught fire just simply from the heat. And then once you get uh, combustion inside the building, uh, most buildings are going to be vulnerable to that. Uh, but in general, a well-detailed, uh, naturally naturally based, uh, natural building based in natural construction is going to be fire resilient. That seems like it would be one of the major reasons that more people would be ca catalyzing interest around this. Um, I understand that another concern about natural building is the affordability. Could you speak to historically and maybe why um, why that has been and, and how can we look now and into the future to make natural building more affordable? Yeah, and actually I just thought of one more uh, point about um, natural building and fire. The other real advantage to natural building uh, is that if it does burn, it doesn't produce a lot of toxic material afterward, you know, so ideally it doesn't burn, but you know, that 
a bale building that burns is not producing some of the problems that we've had with conventional buildings burning uh, in the aftermath of that. Um, yeah, so cost and natural material, it's just really interesting uh, because, I, you know, and I mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, but uh, a lot of us, when I began learning how to do this, it was still very much a DIY, um, hands-on, build-for-yourself movement. Um, and then in the Bay Area in particular, there is a small, really, um, actually not so small anymore, but uh, relatively concentrated group of designers who have been specifically, you know, architectural offices and engineers uh, who have been working with these materials for 20 years uh, or more in some cases. Um, and so those two groups have really been the driving forces behind most of what's been built until very recently. Uh, so you either have people building for themselves, um, often in pretty remote places, though not so much anymore. Um, and then you have specific architectural offices who are uh, constructing often custom buildings because that's their brand and their clientele. Um, and we have an opportunity, and that's the, not the whole spectrum, but it's a lot of it. Um, and so that's what's been driving the market until very recently. Um, and so really what we have an opportunity for is the creation of simple design uh, that has a lot to do with how much a building costs. Um, and that's not difficult to do. It just, they're just, you know, has, that hasn't been a big share of the market yet. Um, but my, I foresee that, that, um, the high performance, low carbon buildings um, combined with uh, increasing awareness and desire for natural construction and healthy construction um, are going to change that very rapidly. And you're already starting to see that in Europe. Um, there's industrial forms of straw construction. Um, industrial is probably the wrong word, but more streamlined uh, pre-manufactured products that use straw um, that are still very ecological in construction. And so this, this, this next part of the movement is beginning to take root. So how else can natural building contribute to long-term uh, community resiliency? Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of ways, actually. Um, but uh, one thing that's of particular interest to me is the, well, two things, um, labor uh, and also supply chains that we talked about. And so I think specifically in the case of Northern California, we already have a pretty small but well-established community of regenerative agriculture. Um, and I think, uh, not to go too far into what that's like, but what characterizes regenerative farming, um, monetizing that process is that you'll have several yields from one uh, cropland or one set of fields. Um, and so the marketing is different. Uh, and I think the more we can do to offer supportive markets for the products of regenerative agriculture, um, the more we're contributing to the stability and resilience of those practitioners within the community uh, and also expanding the um, appeal for more people to adopt those practices. So, um, you know, um, carbon favorable practices for soil, um, which is important even if we aren't dealing with climate change um, for good agriculture. Uh, and so I think that's one opportunity. And the other um, is that we have a, with natural building, um, you have opportunities for unusual labor, you know. So we would, in this case, we would need designs that employ the conventional labor pool as well, of course. Um, but because natural materials are relatively straightforward to work with, if you have a skilled leader for the parts of the project, um, you can bring in design students that want hands-on experience. You know, a wonderful model for this that I've loved for years is Rural Studio, um, where students go and live in communities and design and build for them uh, as a part of their design uh, degree, which I think is really important. Um, and there's actually a lot of interest in that kind of experience. Uh, and the other is um, training local workforces to have a greater range of skills. You know, so there are definitely community colleges in Santa Rosa that would be, I think, really interested. Uh, actually, I've heard will be very interested in including um, some of these building skills as a part of their training process um, to expand uh, 
people's ability to build green and their awareness of building green, you know, and the flexibility of their skill set. Uh, and so I think that's a really great opportunity uh, that we have for this fiery build. So this podcast is really just meant to give our listeners just a taste um, to get involved. We're going to be um, starting kind of launching a call to action for community members to start contributing um, in a much more robust way. But just to kind of bring our conversation to a close, could, could you give a taste for people of what might be the phase plan for starting to um, implement having more of these concepts out in the vernacular, in the architectural community, in the rebuild dialogue, and maybe even some of your thoughts around what, are, what is next for this coalition? Yeah. Uh, well, I think um, I think we do want to do a little bit of prototyping, uh, not so much for testing building uh, techniques, but for um, modeling and financial modeling. Um, and we also have some work to do um, around what the um, development model looks like. Like, what what do we need to enable all the parts of a build that scaled up a bit? Um, and so there's some conceptual work that we're in the middle of. Um, and need to get further with, I think, before we really tackle a big part of the rebuilds. Um, but we would love to find um, several good opportunities for prototyping uh, simple, affordable, natural designs, um, and both uh, to double check the, um, the cost structure around that, uh, and then also to give people uh, examples, physical examples of what this would be like before we endeavor to scale up. Um, we also are um, in conversation with several community members around what a community-driven development model would look like. Um, what do people want? You know, what does it mean to bring these ideas uh, in support of the community rather than imposing them on the community? You know, and so there are a lot of diverse conversations going on about this, um, and we're bringing some of those together to really try to answer those questions. Um, and then also bringing in the, the agriculture um, community once I think probably a little bit down the road, like what, what do you guys want for a market? Like how can we be most supportive? You know, how can these endeavors be combined most effectively, the growth of regenerative agriculture and the growth of natural construction. Um, so those, that's what I see as the next steps, uh, more community building and then beginning the design, the pro design of the prototype design process and then going from there. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much, Massey. Thank you for um, really exercising your voice and the voice of experience, having built dozens. How many How many dozens of houses have you contributed to? <laughs> houses, parts of houses, I don't know. <laughs> um, and, and just really, um, really acting in service. I think there's a lot of um, certainly trauma around the fires and, and um, I think your, your voice is just um, such a, a gift to the people that are really thinking and it's you know, it's not uncommon to hear people say in Sonoma County and I'm sure in Southern California too um, we want to really make make a difference in terms of rebuilding in a different way and thinking about uh, a different way of, of sheltering our, our communities so uh, looking forward to the road ahead Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy to listen to all of our episodes go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.